0: Welcome to the Bike Show. I'm Jack Thurston, and as I speak, there is a long train of people riding their bikes across the vast Australian continent. And they've been on the go since last Saturday, riding as far and as fast as they can. This is the first ever Indian Pacific Wheel Race. It's an ultra long distance bike race where riders must look after themselves. So there's no support crews, no following cars. Riders must navigate find food, rest, shelter, and deal with any mechanical or medical problems out on the road. To talk about the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, I'm delighted to be joined down the line by two experts in long-distance bike racing. Craig Fry is an Australian cycling journalist who's no mean long-distance cyclist himself, and Chris White, who joins us from Switzerland, is a long-distance cyclist who has competed in three of the first four editions of the Transcontinental Race. He runs the Ride Far website, which provides advice on how to be successful in self-supported ultra-distance bikepacking races. Welcome both to The Bike Show. Hi, Jack. Before we start talking about the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, you can... Um, give the listeners a, an overview of where you come from in terms of your own um, cycling and your own interest in long distance cycling so if I, could, I could maybe start with with Craig first in in Australia
1: thanks Jack first thing to say is next to some of these guys who are at the pointy end of the Indian Pacific wheel race and probably you know it's fair to say probably Chris also I wouldn't quite class myself in the same category as the ultra uh, endurance riders I've I guess in recent years I've uh, started to do some 24-hour races down here, team time trials, so certainly not individual races. But if there was a scale of crazy, I wouldn't put myself up the high end of crazy. Uh, I know I can uh, I can ride 24 hours or 20 hours in one stint without stopping with people around me. But, uh, yeah, this, this Indian Pacific wheel race and some of the other uh, the continental and the uh the American versions of this are uh, you know certainly next level. I got into it. look, I was just a uh, period of recreational and fitness riding really with with mates, and we found over a ten year period each year we would uh, you know level up and seek out the next biggest challenge really and before we we knew it, a small group of us found ourselves doing twenty four hour races down here in Australia. I've developed an interest uh, as time's gone on, I guess.
0: And, and Chris, three-time transcontinental um, racer, how did you get into long-distance cycling?
2: Uh, first, when I was a student and I wanted a cheap way to see places and uh, travel. And I decided cycling would be the cheapest way. And uh, then when I started doing it, I found it was actually the best way to see places. So I'm basically a bike tourer turned into a racer. And, uh, and, yeah, when I saw the transcontinental race, I realized that that was the kind of serious cycling that I wanted to do. But, yeah, there's a big difference between the people who come from a racing mode and want to then do a sort of ultra distance multi-day event. And the people like me who come from touring and know all that kind of aspect, but
0: then start racing. Well, that's a really interesting journey because, I, I mean, I'm, I do a lot of cycle touring, but I, I can't actually get my head around the idea of doing one of these long distance races where, you know, day after day after day, you just have to keep going and, you you know, can't carry much stuff and you're, you're really exposed on every level, physical, mental and to, to the elements around you. Um, that must have been a very interesting transition to make from, from uh, cycle touring into ultra racing
2: it's it's the mental aspect that everyone underestimates that everyone worries about the physical if they're prepared physically mm. and then you realize after a few days if your body's holding up and you're not developing injuries then it's all about the mental yeah and it's all about just keeping focus keeping motivated to keep and just making good decisions even when you're exhausted and that's the hardest part
0: so let's uh, let's turn to the indian pacific wheel race craig you've written about it
1: give us a bit of an overview of the route, the rules and the riders. This is a race that takes place across the vastness of uh, Australia, coast to coast. So it started at 6am last Saturday morning on the 18th of March in Fremantle, which is uh, uh, over in Western Australia. Um, The riders dipped their back wheels uh, into the Indian Ocean before they started in fine Australian overlander tradition. And they're heading some 5,500 kilometres uh, from the west coast, east across Australia through uh, Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria, past Canberra into New South Wales, finally stopping at the Opera House in, uh, in Sydney. It's mind-boggling, really. It's um, 5,500 kilometres and with some just over 33,000 metres of vertical uh, so it's taking in some of Australia's hardest landscapes, probably all types of Australian terrain, with the exception of the, the deepest, uh, driest, most dangerous desert, um, probably thankfully for the riders. It doesn't go through there. But, you know, just to give you an idea, the last sort of uh, five or six days they've had to get across the Nullarbor Plain uh, and um, Nullarbor means no, no trees. So there's no cover. Uh, they're exposed in every sense of the word. There's no shade. They're really at the elements there, or they were. Uh, they're going through the Victorian Alps and the Australian high country as well, uh, and, you know, through the rolling hills and climbs around Adelaide and uh, Victoria's Great Ocean Road, just to, just for good measure. It's, uh, I guess, by distance, um, by uh, amount of vertical gain, and by just, you know, different terrain, dead roads, different uh weather regions uh too it's testing uh testing in all of those ways and uh chris yeah mentioned the mental aspect of it it's going to be that those changing conditions i guess that are that will start to probably weigh heavily on a lot of the more inexperienced riders i would think um i just noticed one of the I guess one of the superstars of this uh, side of the, the ultra-sport, ultra Christophe Allager, um, the Belgian, said not that long ago, a couple of days ago actually, that it's 30% equipment, 30% fitness and 40% mental. So um, it's a big, big challenge they've all got themselves in, in for and, you know, it's already, I guess, it's already starting to exact a, a, a big toll on some of the riders. So they're following a fixed route um, yep. They don't
0: have to get, choose their own route. That, they obviously have to keep to the route. Um, they don't have to make decisions about whether to go via Italy or Greece or whatever, like riders in the transcontinental sometimes have to do. What else, Chris, do you find interesting in this particular race as compared to transcontinental, the Trans Am, which I suppose are the other two big road, um, ultra-distance bike races?
2: Especially compared to the Transcontinental, the big difference is the distances between services and how limited services are along the route. It's going to get a little easier, I think, when they get further east, but for the uh, first half of the race, it's very sparsely populated and they've had 150 to 200 kilometers between services, and then services were only open at certain times of the day. So you might arrive and it doesn't open again for 10 hours, so you have to decide whether to continue on another 150 kilometers. Or sit around for 10 hours to get some water or some food. So, if you're not planning your day right and you're not aware of what's available where, then uh, then you can really arrange problems. And that's definitely something you don't have to worry about as much in Europe. Um, a little bit on some parts of the Trans America route, but uh, nothing as extreme as what they've had to deal with logistically in Australia the last few days.
0: And in terms of the riders, I mean, there's, a, there's a very strong field taking part, it seems to me. Um, and what I suppose piqued my interest more than anything is this uh, first time that Christoph Alligeit, who you mentioned, Craig, who is a three-time winner of the Transcontinental. I think he's, he's won it each of the times that he's entered, that's for sure. And he's won it in a kind of processional way, often two or three countries ahead of the second-place rider. Well, he is up against... Another star of the field, Mike Hall. And Mike has never ridden the transcontinental race because he is the organiser and promoter of the transcontinental race. And it was actually last summer when I interviewed Mike after the race and I said to him, look, when are you going to race Christophe? Because Mike had just come back from um, the Tour Divide where he'd won it again and set a new record and not just any old record, but I think beating the previous record by over a day. Um, and so there are these, t- these two, I think, probably would be regarded as the most accomplished long-distance bike racers in the world at the minute. And they're going head-to-head for the first time.
2: Yeah, we can thank Jesse Carlson for uh, persuading them and convincing them and getting them down to Australia to race against each other. It was just the right opportunity for them, I think. So I really thank
0: Jesse. And and they're, very, they're still going head-to-head, aren't they? It's, it's a matter of a few kilometres after... Two thousand or more kilometers of racing is that is that where things are, Craig?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually just looking at the the tracker as we're speaking, and Mike is currently about seventy to eighty k behind uh, Christoph. The other interesting story too is uh, the Melbourne girl Sarah Hammond, who uh, has I guess been a relative newcomer to this this sport. She's actually, if the distances and the trackers are correct, uh, she's in fourth spot at the moment couple of hundred K behind the two, two to three hundred K behind those two. So she's yeah, she's going well, very well. I mean this is interesting, isn't it? Because it does seem that the longer the race
0: is, the less the differences are between men and women. I remember talking to Emily Chappell, who was the first woman home in the Transcontinental last year, that she was wanted to be racing for a top ten in the overall next yeah, well, this year in the Transcontinental race and Lyle Wilcox won the Trans Am bike race I think last year didn't she so um, it it does seem as though I mean when I talked to Mike about it he felt that so much of long distance racing is about organization about mental strength 'Cause you're racing over a period of, of a week or more and um and you're on your own. Yes. And and that's a completely different scenario and therefore the you know, the differences between men and women are reduced. Yeah, it's
2: not only the fact that the mental thing is so important and that it's equal for men and women, but also sort of in scientific tests the physiology shows that the longer the event the less difference there is. And I guess it's not just in this ultra cycling, in many ultra running events the women are competing with the men
0: and sometimes beating them as well. We've talked about the, the, the leading riders, as we should, but one of the nice things about the transcontinental race, and, and, and that's the race that I've looked at in most detail, is that there is quite a long tail of people doing the race for all different kinds of reasons who aren't necessarily racing for the win or the top ten, are just doing something to challenge themselves and experience something completely different from anything they've ever done before. Is the Indian Pacific Wheel Race a race like that where there is this long tail of people who are going to be taking considerably more time but still experiencing you know once in a lifetime challenge
1: that's certainly the case with this in fact you probably argue uh, with no no disrespect intended to the bulk of the field uh i don't know there's maybe 10 Maybe a couple more, ten or so people who are actually really racing to try and you know podium or uh, racing the event in the true sense of the word, and then the rest of the field, which there was around seventy that started last week. Uh, we've since had about eleven pull out. The rest of the field, bulk of the field, are really just I guess racing themselves in some sense. So it's more about the personal, the personal challenge. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, Jack, because there are some interesting stories. I mean, every one of the 70 people who started this event, you know, will all have an interesting story to tell. And that's, I guess, as a sidebar, that's that's fascinating. Uh, I've also written about this. The fascinating aspect of this race is the coverage, the social media coverage that's all around it. Um, You know, for the dot watchers uh, like me out there that are looking at it, you know, we can look at the tracker, we can look at social media, uh, and can really follow this cycling event in a way that is not possible in any other sort of cycling event, really. And so, you know, I think that's an interesting aspect. But, but in, just in the mix, I mean, there's five or so of your countrymen who are still riding this race at the moment. Mike Sheldrake from Leicester, who's 59. Frank Proud, who's 49. Joe Donnelly from Pontbury, who's 23. Leo Bridger from Cambridge, who's 20. He's probably one of the youngest ones in the field. Dan Welch from Reading, 27, and then you've also got a 74-year-old uh, Australian guy, Paul Ardill, who's currently at the tail of the field. And you know, you mentioned the long tail. There's currently about 1600 odd kilometres <laughs> separating first and and last. At least some of your listeners, uh, Jack, will will know who Rupert Guinness is. He's perhaps the most famous Australian cycling journalist who's you know been covering the Tour de France and the other spring classics since the early 1980s and he's published um countless books about you know the tour and sort of australian cycling history he's actually he's actually documenting his journey and he's going to write a book about um the overlander tradition in australia and you've got youtubers like uh cycling maven who again might be known to some of your uh listeners he's a um mark ferguson from melbourne he's a um quite a quite a, a famous YouTuber who, who vlogs around cycling issues and, you know, he does, he's does. he been doing daily uh, Instagram um, updates and, you know, Facebook Lives um, and that sort of thing. So there's the pointy end of the race which is interesting for the purest ultra-endurance fans but there's all these other little stories that are happening day in, day out, hour in, hour out. In, in many ways it's a real challenge to actually – decide well who and how are you going to watch the race unfold it's uh it's i think it's interesting i i, I personally find that aspect of um this event uh very interesting yeah absolutely
0: i've, I've written about that in the past about how you can yeah tailor your own coverage and you can also imagine a little bit more i think because so much is left to the imagination you don't know quite what's going on you might go on to google earth and zoom in on a rider and see where they where they've stopped for the last four hours and thinking is that a tracker error or are they sleeping under that boulder or what's going on um whereas in the tour de france or other big professional bike races you've got the helicopters you've got the motorbike cameras you see almost too much of the race in some ways and, and very little is left to the imagination and in a sense the way in which we are consuming these kinds of bike races, the Indian Pacific Wheel Race and the Transcontinental, the Trans Am, is much more like the original way in which bike racing was was consumed 100 years ago or, 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 or 80 years ago because there wasn't television everywhere and journalists had to do a little bit more digging and a little bit more um, Im- imagining what might have happened. And obviously there... Four, you end up with these great legends of bike racing which in some ways may be not entirely uh, justified by what actually happened
2: That's so, one thing I've noticed that's different on this race, there's a lot more video content coming out and immediately uh, during, during the race partly because there's a couple of major YouTube stars there's um, Cycling Maven in the race and Durian Rider who started the race but now he's in one of the follow cars and posting videos of his own so I think there's more that you can watch and see coming out of this race than there has been most of the other bike packing races that have happened in the last few years so that's
0: quite interesting seeing yeah. on the road and seeing how people are feeling and seeing their faces is is that testament to the to the excellence of um australian 4g uh coverage uh, you might you may have to cycle 120 kilometers between um you know, places where you can get a drink of water, but you can you can uh, YouTube all the way along.
1: Yeah, exactly. I spoke with uh, Jesse Carlson prior to the start of the race uh, a couple of weeks. And
0: Jesse's the organiser, right? That's
1: right, yeah. So, Jesse's, um, uh, he won the Transamerica race. Uh, I think Chris will correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was 2015. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so he's a, you know, he's a, he's a young guy. In his younger years, he was, um, he was uh, a junior BMX world champion. Interesting guy, actually. He's got a PhD in physics and, you know, part of a bike manufacturing company called Curve, which, uh, is, you know, quite a few of the local Aussie riders are riding Curve bikes. But um, part of his uh, vision around this was to be certain that, um, they paid attention to consolidating uh, the various uh, social media snippets, uh, um, video footage, you know, photos posted, Twitter, Twitter stuff, um, putting it all in the one place, and they're doing that on the Curve uh, website. This was part of his vision. He really wanted to to make it easier for the dot watchers and uh, other people new to watching a race like this to actually find the the information that was swirling around about it just so happens that along the way you've got uh, famous folks famous on the internet folks um, who are helping out by posting to their follower base and you've also got for good measure you've got the Rafa Australia guys uh, following it yeah so at the last count, there's going to be something like two or three documentaries uh, being made about this. So, yeah, there's so, there'll, there'll be no shortage of the stories uh, from within and around the race uh, available to, the, to everyone. Well, I'll be sure to put some links to
0: some of these um, resources where people can follow the race um, from the Bike Show website. How will the riders be feeling now, Chris? Um, You've you've done this um, and you you offer advice and you run the, the Ride Far website where you talk about all this kind of stuff. How will the riders be feeling? We are recording this now Thursday evening Australian time, so they will have been going for five, six days. How will they be feeling?
2: Various ways and probably their mood is going up and down all the time during the day. There's probably low points and high points all the time. All of them would have got into the rhythm by now and kind of know how how they're doing and how to plan their days and how to manage themselves and things like that. But with the especially the first time as the first three or four days. They're just figuring things out. Um, but by now, there's less surprises coming along and they kind of know that when they have a down patch, that a nut patch is probably going to come if they just keep pedaling. Um, And the fact that they just need to keep fueling, they seem to have all realized that the food's the most important thing in order to keep their mood up and keep their energy up. There's the people who uh, haven't quite gone as far each day as they were hoping to, especially a lot of the rear of the field has had a lot more headwinds. So they've been slowed down, and so then they're starting to think about the fact that there's still 4,000 kilometers left for some of them, and they're already uh, hurting and exhausted. So just trying to focus on what they need to do now and get into the next town and breaking it down more and trying not to think about 4,000 kilometers still to go uh, is going to be essential for them. Um, And then the guys at the front of the race, I've been closer to the front, but never really attacking like the top 10 of those guys are. And I'm trying to imagine what they're feeling like, especially Christoph and Mike. I think it's very interesting. What I want to know right now is, are they paying attention to what each other is doing, or are they just sticking to their strategy, because they both would have gone into it with a goal and a strategy of where they wanted to be at certain points. And it would be interesting to know, are they just going for that, or are they just looking at what the other guy is doing and reacting to that? Um, and that, that, that's, that's one of the most interesting things at the front of the race right now. Are they going on strategy, or are they starting to use tactics?
0: And what about sleep? Because Christoph and Mike don't seem to be sleeping very much. I saw an Instagram post from Mike where he said he needed to definitely have four hours sleep, he said, because he wasn't sure of what was happening and whether the miles that he'd just ridden were real or not.
2: Yeah, there was one point. That's when he got very close to Christoph, and he came in there and he says, I'm not sure how much of that was real or was just imagined. <laughs> um, and then he had his, probably his longest leap of the race, which was five or six hours off the bike. Um, But then the next night, then he reported he couldn't sleep at all. He stopped by the side of the road a couple of times and tried to sleep for half an hour and gave up and got back on the bike. Um, But then a little while after that, he had another longer break of five hours. And then Christoph's been having shorter breaks, but a bit more regularly. Um, But then, yeah, as I say, they're they're both not following a pattern that you can really tell when they're going to do anything. And i don't know if and they're really offset of each other as to when they're stopping and taking the breaks that's why the gap between them is fluctuating from like 30 kilometers to 150 kilometers as one of them stops for five hours and the other one keeps riding those guys they're probably averaging sleep of maybe three hours a night but even the guys in the back who are just or in the mid pack who just need to keep putting the kilometers in they're probably still only getting five hours six hours a night so they're it's not enough, especially when you're doing working that hard during the day. But somehow you make it happen and you, you get by somehow. You're not quite sure why or how, but it works.
0: And are they sleeping out in the open or are they kind of stopping at gas stations and sort of hiding behind a vending machine like, like one of the riders did in the, in the other a transcontinental race a couple of years ago? What are the options on, on this race for getting some, getting some sleep?
2: They're using all the options from what I've seen. Uh, The mid-pack riders are stopping specifically at these roadhouses and finding rooms there. Um, The guys at the front, um, they are, and even some of the mid-pack guys or some of the average speed guys like Mike Sheldrake, I know he's quite happy just stopping on the side of the road and uh, getting some sleep uh, under a bush. Um, But then some of the really fast guys I saw on the first night, they got into a um, a patrol station and the front two guys apparently just crashed on the uh, floor of the toilet in there because it was raining outside so they didn't want to sleep outside so they stopped on the floor of the toilet for an hour or two and then got back on the bikes um, or, uh, but other places when they do want a longer sleep they'll find an actual hotel and just take it for a few hours and then get going again even a, an hour or two sleep by the side of the road makes you feel significantly better afterwards and gives you quite a bit of energy so when you can get away with that's what they're doing
0: so the, the privations that some of these riders are enduring does very much hark back to a long tradition of overland bicycle riding in Australia, doesn't it, um, Craig? I mean, you, you know a lot about this world. Maybe for those of us who don't, you can kind of um, give us the potted history of, of, of bicycling overlanding in Australia.
1: This was something really that started uh, down here in Australia back in the, um, you know, the mid to, to late 1800s and Back then it was, uh, um, given that we're um, such a new country back then, uh, there weren't very many sealed roads out in these parts that they're riding through now. So certainly the early overlanders uh, had to make do with, uh, you know, just dirt tracks and sand really in most cases. Probably the first long-distance ride uh, was way back in 1869 when uh, it took William Curnow from Melbourne to ride to Geelong, which is only about 80 kilometres, took him nine or ten hours on a velocipede. And then I guess over the years, the people like him who, um, as they, you know, got themselves the new bicycles that were landing in Australia from Europe, you know, they're obviously testing them out, riding further and further, and that just snowballed, I guess. And, you know, we've had down the years in those... um, uh, 150 years since you know, a long string of um long distance riders and probably the most famous was hubert opperman so hubert opperman or oppie and he was he was famous in australia but also in europe too and in 1931 he won the paris brest paris uh race which is you know a famous one in the in the ultra cycling world they're still going of course And he, you know, in the 30s and um, through that period set a lot of uh, long-distance records from capital city to capital city down here and around the track because he was an all-rounder, records that still, many of which still stand today. Initially, it wasn't so much about record-breaking. It was the overlander tradition, it's fair to say, down in Australia started off more as part of the adventurer exploration uh, spirit. And it was really about, you know, city-bound and I guess larger regional town-bound folks who looked out to the Australian interior and, you know, this was back before there were roadmaps and much of an understanding about what was out there. And some of them, you know, probably the same if you, if you could personality test them and compare them to personali- personality tests of the Pack riders, they'd probably be on the same spectrum. <laughs> These are just people who looked out into the interior and wondered, well, what a- what's out there? And let me get my bike and I'm going to go and find out. So um, it's really only a part of Australian cycling history that's only starting to be rediscovered again very significant down here because uh, the exploits of some of these people uh, were widely reported. These uh, folks like Ernie Old and Ozzie Nicholson and Francis Bertels and names that I could go on with, they were heroes back then. You know, the the media of the day would uh, report on their exploits and as they were passing through towns and going, getting to the finish line, there were pictures from the archives that show literally thousands upon thousands of people turning up and cheering these people men and women so you know i haven't mentioned any women but uh our overlander history down here has always included you know the intrepid uh young uh female writers too who are setting records and trying to keep up with their their male counterparts so yeah look a long history and um significant in our history because it, ironically you know we think about today often in the metro areas we talk about the cars versus cyclists and the you know the road wars and that sort of thing but ironically um in australia it was these early cyclists and the maps they made of their first trips over these long distances which actually informed the uh, development of the first road maps in Australia. So yeah, um long long history and and again, you know, to his credit, Jesse Carlson really mindful. I mean, it's pretty clear if if any of your listeners uh just pop on over to the IndyPak Pack uh, Wheel Race website, you'll see on pretty much all the pages there uh, a nod to the some of this history, little snippets, little stories. And Jesse was very really clear that part of his vision for this race was to Use it to to I guess reinvigorate that uh, overlander spirit. The outback does play
0: this fundamental role in Australian identity, culture, history. It's it's a very powerful thing that I don't think. Certainly not in Britain. We've not got anything <laughs> like that. We've got not got any wilderness here. I suppose in even in Europe, really. In the United States, they've got you know there's the Wild West. But yeah. but the the Australian outback is another degree of wildness beyond even the, the the American far west, isn't it? Just in terms of the the sheer size of it, the temperature, the dryness, it's a hard place, and and, and an even harder place to uh, to try and
1: cross on a bicycle on a dirt track. It's fair to say that even these days. A uh, large uh, proportion of the Australian population would not have uh, set foot in in the more remote areas of Australia, and so you know the the fact that it's unknown helps perpetuate the, the 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 myths and the legends around you know how harsh it is, and so naturally you know even you know even keen cycling fans when uh, who know about this history and you know who are watching these dots at the moment. An event like this really captures the imagination because you know you're if you haven't been out in these parts, it's just uh, it just adds to the richness of the story. Really, uh, makes it more appealing. If you look at just some of the 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 daily kilometres that uh, some of these riders are covering, that's impressive enough. But you then uh, situate that into the, some of the terrain they're riding in. It's uh, yeah, as I said earlier, it's next level stuff really. So so
0: Chris, um, you said earlier that you you came to long-distance bike racing from cycle touring. Um, And one of the things I like about some of these um, routes of these long-distance bike races, like particularly the Tour Divide, I think, and then some of the the additions of the transcontinental race and certainly some of the sections of the transcontinental race, if not all of them, would make for quite good touring routes. And so they're almost like a way to take a look at an area that you might want to go to and do the same ride, do the India-Pacific wheel race over two months rather than two weeks. Do you think this is a, a route that could make sense for, from a sort of recreational leisure cyclist or is it just too, too hard, too difficult?
2: Well, that's one thing that Jesse said when uh, he was setting it up is that's one of his goals of not just making a great race and having great people come here to do it now um, and having great stories to share with, from that but also to leave it as a route proposed route for bike tourers to to use to cross the country um, and it certainly seems of the stuff i'm seeing coming out right now it's the uh, the races on the route are not the only cyclists on the route there are already many bike tourers traveling along that route especially the bit across the naderborn because there aren't any other options out there um, but then also in the eastern section they he's contacted local riders to know which are the best routes to use around certain areas um so he's geared it towards being an interesting route as well as uh as well as having a race route leaving something for bike tourists to use in the future and yes the other races like the transcontinental then uh mike definitely picks out beautiful places in europe to go to to really suffer in um that may be even more enjoyable if you weren't in a race mode but uh, there's different people who enjoy them in different ways, so yeah.
0: And Craig, do, would you say that there are any particularly uh, stunning bits of the route uh, that we should be looking out for or that people might be thinking might be a good destination for, um, for a bike tour?
1: Yeah, look, I'd say right away you can forget about the Nullarbor Plain. <laughs> Stay well away from there. I mean, perhaps the most hardline ultra cyclists can can toughen out across that stretch As you know, if you cross the... Um, Great Australian Bight, the Great Ocean Road through Victoria. So this is uh, so you'll see on the uh, on the route uh, map as they um, come down through Adelaide and uh, along the coast through Mount Gambier on the border there. The Great Ocean Road that hugs the uh, Victorian uh, Victorian coastline is truly spectacular. I've ridden that section, uh, a lot of that section myself. It's a beautiful stretch, uh, runs all the way back uh, through to Geelong, just outside of Geelong and connects back up through um, the road, then takes you up to Melbourne. And then after that, you know, it'll take you through the Victorian uh, Alps. So uh, they'll go through Gippsland, through Tarelgon, and then up into the mountains, up through Omeo and... um, I think they're going over Falls Creek, if memory serves me correctly. But, yeah, all that, uh, you know, the Alpine National Park and and then around through past Kosciuszko, um, Australia's highest mountain. Beautiful riding if you're touring it. Probably not noticeably beautiful if you've got, you know, by that stage three or 4,000 k's in the (laughs) legs. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of the race itself, this will be... I'm um, predicting this will be a section that will break a lot of the remaining riders. That's where most of the climbing going to be. So, you know, remember the riders by then, even though they would have ridden into their rhythm and um, have everything worked out by then, they'll have tremendous amount of cumulative fatigue, not to mention, um, you know, soft tissue uh, problems too, no doubt, saddle sores and whatnot. So the beautiful high country um, is um, going to be testing for a lot of them, I think. From a touring point of view, yeah, look, it'd be amongst the the better uh, routes that um, visitors to Australia who bring bikes should be looking at.
0: Chris, would you agree with that analysis that that, that it's going to get harder and and maybe in a way that people don't expect? Are we going to see a very high attrition rate in in this in this race?
2: I think they're all they're all aware of the fact that the mountainous part is towards the end of the route, but then again. The mountains, as long as you've got the right gearing, the mountains don't have to, you don't have to work overly hard on the mountains. I think what would have broken them more is a big part of the field, as I said, they've done multiple days in a row into a headwind on a flat road. And that's, that breaks you more easily than I think the mountains. Partly because of the monotony and keeping motivated when the wind's blowing and you're struggling to do 15 kilometers an hour um, and you're pushing hard on the pedals the whole time. On the mountains, at least you get a downhill, you get a break, you get a pause, you get a little rest, but when you're just hours and hours pushing hard on the pedals, not even going as fast as you want to be, for me, that's a lot harder than riding in the mountains. Um, and then the other thing we do tend to see in these sort of races is the attrition rate in the early days, as quite a few people who drop out, and then normally the latter half of the race, the people who've made it that far, if they're going to have problems, they normally have already had problems. There's still a few drop out occasionally, but normally the dropout rate kind of decreases as the race goes on. The ones who've got two thirds of the way through the race, they're reasonably likely to actually finish. Uh, No matter how long it takes them, they're so determined by then, they can see the finish line in sight, and they kind of tough it out. So I'm interested to see, because no other race has had the real hardest climbing section at the end. But again, I'm not sure that's going to be the hardest part of this race. I think those guys who had to do several days of headwinds and several of those days in the rain i think that might have been the hardest part i think they might have already
0: done the hardest part some of them well that's good news for them i suppose um, <laughs> craig are you going to be going to the finish line to, um, to to see the riders come over and and who are you going to see coming over first if, if you do make it over there
1: to be honest i haven't thought that far ahead <laughs> it's uh no i haven't i haven't made plans in that regard on but uh you know i guess you'd have to you know, in terms of who's who might win this race at this point, you'd have to you'd have to tip either Christoph or Mike. Um, I'm going to ask you to narrow it down. Oh, you want one winner? Well, to be honest, I don't know enough of those guys to know who's going to you know come to the fore. Um, it has been just from you know the outside looking in. It has been amazing seeing seeing the rate that they're they're riding at i mean i sort of did some quick calculations before just at the moment as we're drawing the end of day six um christoph has averaged over 430 kilometers a day uh and mike hall's averaged you know around 420 kilometers a day so yeah they're big days uh and you know they're as chris has said there have been big days where the wind hasn't uh, been that kind then uh, they've been uh, travelling over dead roads and uh, it's been raining and uh, yeah so look I, I'd flip a coin the one prediction I'd make and probably is um, bias and favouritism I'd be tipping Sarah Hammond would be the first first female home and uh, she uh, she'll close the gap on those guys as as the days go on and Chris what are your predictions
2: well, yeah, I think Sarah Hammond's one dimension, because I think the front two is going to be really hard to call. And then there's a race of who's third, I think. And I I, I would tip Sarah Hammond to be the one who's the best of everyone else. Um, and out of the front two, the thing I'm most interested to see is because Christoph has won the Transcontinental three times, every time he's been in it. And he's only ever taken seven or eight days to finish that. Um, he did a longer race in Russia, but that was specific stages and they had specific rests between them So he's never managed it for more than a week before he's never had to manage his his time and his food and everything else Mike's uh, History of winning races most of them like in the US the tour divide the Trans Am are sort of 14 to 17 days So Mike's gonna have no problem in the second week. He's done it many times before Christoph, second week It's a bit of uncharted territory for him And I know he's already said in other things about the transcontinental, he doesn't eat that much during the transcontinental, only a few thousand calories a day, and he loses several kilos during the race. And that's just, he says, you can't eat enough, so why bother, and it takes time to eat. And if he's using that strategy, that might catch up to him in the second week. Um, Also, his sleep strategy, that might catch up to him that sort of thing and i think even Christoph doesn't know how it's going to pan out in the second week whereas mike he's experienced on so many races that two weeks two and a half weeks so mike's got an advantage there but Christoph already has a slight lead and has held that lead most of the way since about day two he's had a bit of a lead on everyone else
0: i i'm gonna bet on mike simply because um because of experience in the second week well, that's, uh, that's astute analysis there, Chris. I want to thank you both for um, sharing your expertise um, and uh, opinions on the race. Um, it's, been, it's been fascinating, and I, I'm going to get back to the dot watching for another 10 days or, or more. You can read uh, Chris White's um, website, ridefar.info, which has got all kinds of information on how to be successful in self-supported ultra-distance bikepacking races. And Craig Fry, um, he is push bike writer on Twitter, and um, you'll find his writings on Australian cycling um, all over the internet, won't, won't you, Craig? Anywhere else people should be looking?
1: Uh, cycling tips, uh, SBS Cycling Central, write uh, for a number of outlets.
0: Thanks again, both, and thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. I'm